Welcome to the Target Audience Podcast. Each episode, I discuss a film with a guest who shares a personal connection to the film we discuss. They are the target audience, and I attempt to get on their level. This is a podcast about empathy through film. I'm your cisgender straight white American male host, Ben Miller. My guests include a diverse group, including today's guest, Rotten Tomatoes approved critic, writer for the College Movie Review, Central Track, and The Spool, member of GALECA and the Atlanta Film Critics Circle, and my fellow Texan sport fan, Kip Mooney. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Um, it's uh, it's a rare time to be a Texas Rangers fan and be in a good mood. Exactly, because, yes. Because uh, being in November, you're usually just like, well, our season's been over for uh, a month and a half. Uh, yeah, uh, th- so this, this episode isn't going to premiere for a while, but still, this is November, and we're at the peak of e- euphoria as it comes to being a Texas sports fan. So, I mean, yes. I don't know if you're going to get any better than this. No, I, I I mean the last time I felt this good was 2011. When yeah. First, the Rangers failed to win the World Series, but the Mavericks did win. Yes, the NBA uh, Finals, um, um, and I guess and that was the last time everybody in Dallas was happy as a sports. Fan. Yeah, and now the now the Rangers have won. The Mavericks are looking good. The Cowboys are always what the Cowboys are, and it's just this, this is life. So it is. Um, <laughs> as we uh, as we did as we do every episode, we will obviously get into the film we were talking about, but. Kip, for those who don't know you in the podcasting world, if a film executive were wanting to make a movie specifically for you, cater to all your taste, uh, essentially what would that movie have? So, uh, obviously a compelling story. That's kind of the basis of any film, uh, any good film. Mm. Um, But it would need to be, you know, have an element of mystery to it. uh, Something to kind of hook you in and for you to try to put on your your sleuthing hat um it doesn't have to be a detective story like this one is but you know something where uh you're more engaged than just you just happen to be watching good actors and good directing um yes so that's kind of the the basis but then i like my movies dark but with a little bit of humor Mm. um and you know also, I like as much as I like something truly original. I do like something that, you know, is a little bit familiar, but not cliche. If that makes yes. sense, I like them to kind of to know, you know, whoever's making it to have some sort of sense of, of film history, even if they're not specifically paying homage to a specific filmmaker or style, but to kind of know, to kind of have, you know, a a focus on you know making something compelling that's familiar but has their own spin on it that makes sense and it leads perfectly segueing into the film we're talking about today uh the film you have chosen uh one i cannot say i've seen in uh, uh, a number of years but was able to revisit this time who framed roger rabbit uh coming out of in june of 1988 Directed by Robert Zemeckis, uh, written by Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman. Uh, based on the uh, 
book cartoon, uh, uh, a mystery novel, excuse me, who censored Robert the Rabbit by uh, Gary K. Wolf from the 60s, uh, starring uh, a uh, notable amount of uh, humans and voice actors, uh, Bob Hoskins, Christopher Lloyd, Stubby K., Joanna Cassidy, uh, and Alan Tilburn. Um, and then also uh, you have a number of voice actors, mostly who are voice actors, especially cartoon actors. Uh, Charles Fleischer as Roger Rabbit and Benny the Cab and a couple of the weasels. Uh, Kathleen Turner famously is the speaking voice. Amy Irving as the singing voice to Jessica Rabbit. Uh, and then obviously uh, all the classics, Mel Blanc, um, Mae Questel, uh, you know, uh, uh, Nancy Cartwright, all those people you expect uh, to be voicing the cartoon characters that they were. Um, Kip, can you do us a favor and do us a quick rundown of who framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah, um, so basically this is, in a way, it's kind of like your classic film noir set in Hollywood in the 40s. Um, and Bob Hoskins is this kind of, frankly, alcoholic private detective down on his luck. Yep. And, uh, you know, gets an assignment to take some salacious photos of Jessica rabbit with a movie studio executive. Um, and then that kind of leads to this whole mystery where the person who hired Bob Hoskins character, Eddie Valiant is murdered and all signs point to Roger rabbit, who is the jilted husband, uh, as the murderer. And there's, you know, kind of a wider conspiracy, and, uh, you know, a little bit of a MacGuffin with a missing will um, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it all revolves and kind of uh, comes to centralize in what's known as Toontown, which is kind of this, I guess you could say, segregated community outside of Hollywood where all of the cartoons live and don't interact with humans. Um, and so it's a really compelling mystery but also has you know a lot of humor a lot of sight gags and just some incredible for the time and still very impressive uh visual effects technology yes uh very much so uh whenever you talk about visual effects this was uh this was an oscar winner for uh visual effects uh, believe it or not this film was nominated for seven oscars or six oscars uh, won three of them, including a special achievement award. Won best visual effects, sound effects editing, and uh, film editing. Um, considering uh, the kind of film it was, a really, uh, a, a really kind of a the the big thing. I, so I watched this with my kids, and they, this is the first time they'd seen it. And obviously, I'd seen it a lot whenever I was younger. And looking at it now through adult eyes, it makes me realize how just painfully difficult this must have been to make. Oh yeah, I, I, mean, I still don't know how they pulled it off and made it re even releasable, let alone amazing. yeah. Because you know you 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 see all the you know the the advancements in technology you have these days, you kind of take it all for granted. Like, um, for example, watching like Avengers: Age of Ultron, you're like, well, I know it's James Spader on stilts, but I I, I you you just kind of go past that and you just like kind of live with everything that's going on or people, you know, staring at, uh, you see all the behind the scenes stuff, but I mean, this is 35 years ago, like literally, literally 35 years ago this year was the anniversary of this film. So, I mean, the fact that this was done, it just looks so painstakingly hard to do having to do with like 
especially when you're paying attention to certain kind of scenes, like the scene when Roger is hiding in the back of the speakeasy and they hit the lamp and the lamp's flooding around and somehow the lights and the shadows are somehow able to mix with the cartoon and everything that's going on. It just seems like Robert Zemeckis in the eighties and nineties just wanted to like, okay, I'm going to make a super blockbuster and I'm going to make it as difficult as humanly possible. (laughs) And pretty much that was his thing for a good 20 years. Yeah. Just everything about like, I, I, and, 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 you know, same thing, 1988, I was like, well, the, the effects are going to fail. Like it's not going to work and it's not going to, it's not going to hold up. It, it holds up great. Everything works. Yeah. Well, and to me, really the best special effect is Bob Hoskins because Mm. he's not, he was not very well known at the time. He'd maybe done one movie or two in England, but the fact that he can interact with, because nowadays you have at least a person in a, in, you know, uh, a motion capture suit or they're covered in a green morph suit or whatever. So there's at least something for them to focus their attention on when they're acting with a computer generated character, but he didn't have that. Yeah. There was just nothing there. And he makes all of it believable. And it's just honestly one of the most impressive acting feats I've ever seen. I agree because you think of a guy like Bob Hoskins, like, you don't think of him as like a super self-aware, like I'm willing to do this type of thing actor. You think of him as more of a gruff English, like yeah. veteran guy who is like, if you see the film Mona Lisa, where he was Oscar nominated mm-hmm. from uh, two years before, it's a pretty serious film where he does some, he, he it's a, it, it's an exceptional performance, but I mean, you see him in this movie and you're like, he's not going to be on board with what they're doing. And in reality, He's it's it, he's doing does such a good job of playing the gruff and everything, and then he does a show as a song and dance number. Yeah, and he pulls it off to such a degree. Um, when I was looking at reviews of like, our contemporary reviews of people, um, I was shocked at the amount of women who are like Bob Hoskins, very attractive. Yes, <laughs> I, that has that has become kind of a more popular opinion in your, in recent years, and. I, I think it's great, but also I, yeah. part of me was like, where were these women when I was in college? <laughs> right? Because I was, kind of always had the Bob Hoskins physique. Um, hey, it's not a bad, it's not a bad way to go through life. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, I think Hoskins, Hoskins really, you know, of all the, the technological stuff and all of that, it, it plays such a large role, obviously, but Hoskins' role in this film is pretty, I think it's overlooked in the success of it. Like, um, you, you, they look, you know, it's always the cartoon stuff. And without the Hoskins grounding of it and caring about that character and just being soaked in booze, man, he drinks so much in this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he eventually, uh, I mean, works it out and essentially overcomes his prejudice. prejudice. Um, you know, so I'd, I'd asked, you know, if a film executive wanted to make a movie for you, the aspects it would have. Um, I, I usually ask what makes you the target audience for this film? And you're just like, well, the, you know, fun and dark and, uh, something old, but at the same time, something fresh and interesting. This just hits all those marks of what you, 
what you described. Is that why yeah, it's just exactly. one, one of the things? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and as a kid, my parents, I think, did a good job of introducing my sister and me to kind of old Hollywood mm. movies and things like that. So it wasn't just the steady diet of Disney and other animated things. They, yeah. you know, in, introduced older things to us that maybe at the time we didn't appreciate, but definitely grew to later. So that's one of the reasons I liked this movie a lot as a kid is because I understood some of those older Hollywood references. Um, mm. But of course I loved Roger Rabbit, you know, bouncing around and making terrible puns and stuff like that. So <laughs> it, it really worked for me then. And I think works for me more, more so now. You know, uh, it, it's, it's so funny. Like, seeing this movie and my, my, I set my kids down and I'm like, there's gonna be all these cartoon characters. And, and it's like Dumbo shows up pretty soon. And my kids are like very excited about it. And then Roger rabbit shows up and they immediately go like, I don't know who Roger rabbit is. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's such an interesting character to uh, essentially craft a film around because you, it, there is no cultural impact of Roger rabbit prior to this movie. Mm -hmm. You're going into somebody completely cold and then you get Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse for two seconds yeah. or that, that 30 second scene. And then you get like the little you know, Tinkerbell and, you know, all these little like Easter eggs, but without yeah. like the winking of the Easter eggs. It's a yes. really interesting dynamic of it all. Um, you know, it's funny whenever uh, uh, Charles Fleischer, obviously being the voice of uh, Roger Rabbit, um, whenever I think of Charles Fleischer, I don't think of Roger Rabbit. I forget he's the voice of Roger Rabbit. Is there anything you associate him with immediately? No, I mean, I think this is the one that immediately comes to mind, but I know that there's going to be another one that I'm going to be like, oh, yeah. Um, when, Who's whenever I you? think it's uh, it's Zodiac. Um, he was the, he's the creepy guy in the basement with Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, yes, yes. And, and he's so freaking creepy in that movie. <laughs> and, you know, you see it and you're just like... Um, he, he said it's it's such an unset like you don't think of him as an actor actor you right, always just right. think of him as the voice actor and mm -hmm. it's just funny that's whenever i see charles fleischer i'm like isn't that a guy from zodiac and it's kind of back and forth it's it's so not funny lot, that that's the case not a lot of people have basements in california <laughs> exactly. yeah exactly yeah, yeah that's the one it's like i drew that yeah. movie poster it's like that same yep. freaky guy yeah um mm -hmm. so you know, is there like a specific scene or line or visual from this film? There's a lot of super memorable aspects of this film that whenever I was going through the rewatch, I was like, oh, I forgot about this part. It's like, yes. And then this part's coming up and then this part's coming up. And every little bit like got me excited for the rest. Is there like a scene, line or visual from the film that hits you the most? Yeah, I think this is this is pretty common among people who saw it when they were kids because it's very traumatizing but um sure of course the scene where, where judge doom uh you know literally murders an innocent tune just to show <laughs> off his uh chemical concoction that can kill tunes um yeah. and that poor little shoe and it's squealing um but this time going through it i really love the scene because it sets up literally everything that happens in the finale yeah. Like if you're paying attention, like the, the gag with the create a hole thing where you throw the disc on the wall and it makes a hole. Um, yep. And the machine that, you know, plays the music and the the hammer where it's a, a boxing glove that comes out. It out. All yeah. those gags that they're just kind of messing around with at the crime scene in that scene all come into play at yeah. the finale. It's... So. it's... 
and, and the finale is such an interest. Like, um, I, 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 I didn't see uh, when I said it was uh, Roger Rabbit was nominated for the uh, six Oscars. I did. Now I have to check. Okay, good. It was nominated for art direction because I think the art yes. direction in this film, with the specific notion of that last scene, it's like yeah. the art direction is unparalleled. That the dip machine, the boxes, the the flooring, the the the, the entire setup of that mm-hmm. entire that that carnival contraption, everything yeah. about it is so fascinatingly unique. Yes, but at the same absolutely. time. It's essentially taking cartoon aspects and putting them in the real world and how that would function. Yeah, no, and and it's great because Zemeckis and, you know, all of the actors, they can convey the seriousness of it, and then there's time for a two-second gag. Like, Judge Doom pulls a sword out of his cane, so immediately Bob Hoskin goes for a sword, but it starts (laughs) belting a Frank Sinatra song. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, or Bing Crosby, yeah, and no, no, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and there, and you know, it doesn't work as a sword, so he has to go to Plan B. So, yeah, the it's just completely realized, and I'm sure that was probably the hardest thing to shoot. That probably sure, took, you know, several weeks, but uh, it it works, and they they worked their asses off, but it really paid off. We, I don't think we as a society give. Um, Christopher Lloyd enough credit for what he has done in film. Oh yeah, like he was you know obviously Doc Brown being the one thing, and and he kind of gets overlooked in Roger Rabbit just because he's so creepy. You don't think of Doc Brown and and right. and Judge Doom in the same thing, but I mean like he had such a iconic run on Taxi. He was in yeah. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He's in. Uh, uh, obviously his run, he, he was on, I think he was on Star Trek for a long time in Star Trek for a while. Um, in clue in, uh, obviously as uncle Fester in the Adams family movies, you know, the, the kid movie, uh, one, two punch of angels in the outfield and camp nowhere. Like, Oh yeah. That was, that was big when I, in that 95, 96. Absolutely. Era. Yeah. And I mean, like. I don't think we give him enough credit for his impact on cult. How much you know Christopher Lloyd from, like right, and, exactly. And he, because he he doesn't get Oscar nominations. He's but he's just in these things, and you're just like, you know who's great, Christopher Lloyd, and everybody goes yeah. absolutely, and then they move on with their day. I don't get right. it. It's a weird thing. Yeah, no, it really is, and yeah, he really does have an iconic '80s run of of movies that are still beloved to this day. Um, and he, yeah. he also is so different in all those movies. He's not playing the same character in clue that he's playing in this or back to future. He's, he's different in all of them, but always memorable. Yeah. And, and, and you don't even th- like it. Think about judge doom in this film. And you're just like, Oh, is he just down and out creepy and mean? It's like, no, he's actually menacing and mean. And then he has to be comical. And, Oh, I forgot to mention the most terrifying... So, whenever I was a kid, the dipping of the shoe was not the scariest part for me. The scariest part for me was was bald-headed, weird-haired yes. Judge Doom flying through the air. Yes. With terrifying. the eyes. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. Yes. That was the part I was like, oh, this is the nightmare part because it's a thing that's coming straight at the camera. Yeah. yeah. Just, uh, utterly. Um, 
Okay, so I've had this discussion with a couple of people before, and I wanted your opinion. Uh, what happened to Robert Zemeckis? Because if you look at the run from 1984 until 2000, it's almost unimpeachable. Yes. You got Romancing the Stone, Back to the Future 1, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Back to the Future 2 and 3, Death Becomes Her, Forrest Gump, which... If you had, if you don't like Forrest Gump, that's fine. But it made a billion. It made so much money. Got him Oscars. Contact, What Lies Beneath, and Castaway. I mean, that is almost an unimpeachable run. Yeah. And then after, then he goes to the Polar Express, and the wheels fall off. You could talk me <laughs> yeah. into maybe like Polar Express. You're just it, it. It was very successful. But it was what it was. I watched Beowulf in the theaters, and I still so don't know I. what the... It was so strange. <laughs> yes. uh, like, it's so it's so odd. You're like, I watch... Like, so Beowulf is one of those movies... I could probably do a two-hour podcast on Beowulf just because of the oddness of it all. Because yes. Beowulf is definitely one of those things you you had to read in high school. Right. You, you had to read it, and then you... So you know what it is, and you watch the movie, and you're just like, I don't know what that was. I still don't no. know what that was. I know no. I've seen it. I know what happens, and I still don't know what it was. And then he still on the uncanny valley face with the Christmas Carol, a the least impactful Christmas Carol version of it's it, it ever been made. I you and know I he, never saw it, but I think that it it it's a failure having not seen it because he just uses the iconography from other Christmas Carol adaptations. Yeah. Like if you would have at least put like a new spin on how the ghosts look or how Scrooge looks, that would have been at least an, a new aspect to it. But no, he doesn't even do that. And then he, then he goes a weird one, two, three of like, okay, no more uncanny Valley of flight, the walk and allied. Like it's funny because there are some parts of those movies that I really enjoy. Same like, I, I especially like, flight and allied and like flight like you you can say what you want about the rest of the movie mm-hmm. but that plane crash sequence is just oh un- just, yeah. the technical things that robert zemeckis can do with a live action movie mm-hmm. is always vastly impressive to me and that entire yeah. sequence and the rest of the movie is a little cool on me i like what denzel washington does obviously yeah. the walk is a bit of a mess and I I will defend Allied a bit. I will too. Um, um, I, th- I think it's I think it's one of those like old school like hey what if a movie from what if we made a movie from the fifties but actually put like sex and violence and a little bit in right. it right yes and essentially like and and then and then and then the car has gone completely off the tracks. The three pe- the three in a row of Welcome to Marwin, The Witches, and Pinocchio, and not uh, even the good Pinocchio. Yeah. No, I I did not see his two remakes, but I did see Welcome to Marwin, and I, it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I, I I I don't I don't get it. Like yeah, the like you you look at what he was doing in the eighties. He was like, okay, we're focusing on on chemish, actor chemistry and fun settings and interesting ideas. And I mean that's Romance of the Stone, Back to the Future, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Death Becomes Her. Like that's all, that's all actor yeah. chemistry, all of it. And even, even you're like, oh, the technical stuff is like, yeah, yeah. But without Michael J. Fox and, and Christopher Lloyd together, Back to the Future movies don't work. No. And obviously and they tried not... it for six weeks and it didn't work. <laughs> yep. Yep. With Eric Stoltz. And then, 
And you try, and you do Roger Rabbit, like we said, without, without Hoskins, that doesn't work. Romance in the Stone is not a great movie without the sizzling chemistry yes. of Michael Douglas and Catherine and, and uh, Kathleen Turner. Yeah. Death Becomes Her is totally Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep playing off each other. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. And all the extra stuff is awesome. But when you have these movies later, you're like, oh, this just isn't working because it's so focused on everything else. Yeah. And ugh, what a mess. Yeah, I think in a way, so like he and James Cameron both really love new technology and trying to yep. use it on their projects. But it seems to me that James Cameron wants to wait until the technology is right as opposed to yes. just new. And also he wants to tell a story he cares about while using it. Whereas it seems like Zemex is just like, I'm just going to try this new thing. It looks cool without having a good script or the best actors or any of that. It's just, let me try this new thing. And he keeps trying and failing. It's, it's pretty sad, honestly, because he really does have a, like a great technical eye. And for a time he had, he got actors with really good chemistry. And now it just seems like, it's it's yeah. it's also interesting that the last two movies of his went straight to a streaming service because he seems like the ideal filmmaker for this time when it's all based on IP and it's all just viewed as content. Yeah. And it's just, here's something else to throw at you on the streaming service. But yeah, he, as, in terms of the quality, it has dropped off significantly. Yeah, it, it and, and obviously, you know, as big as disasters as... The witches and Pinocchio were, and and from I, I didn't see them, but yeah. from what everybody who saw them said, they were just out and out terrible. Yeah. But they have zero cultural impact because of exactly what you said. They just released the souls to streaming services and they disappeared. Like, yeah. uh, uh, and then he's got a he has another one coming out this next year. Uh, it's based off of a uh, graphic novel. It's called Here. It's a story that covers the events of a single room and its inhabitants spanning from the past well into the future. Um, sure. I mean... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that actually cat. sounds like it'd be a really compelling, like, short series on, like, HBO, like, six episodes. Tom Hanks, but, Robin White, pa- Paul Bettany, Michelle Dockery, Kelly Riley. Well, see, now uh, I'm in again. I'm, I'm ready. Uh, unfortunately, ca- uh, member of the cast, Leslie Zemeckis... Oh. Um, so I, you, you know, this is, a, there might be a Sofia Coppola pers- uh, aspect of it. Yeah. Hopefully Leslie Zemeckis can, uh, go on to a, uh, storied, uh, directorial career. Yeah. But I mean, so this is a, this is a really, uh, so back to Roger Rabbit, this is a really interesting aspect to think about. I always ask this question and the fact that this movie made a ton of money kind of answers the question, but I'm not sure if it does. Do you feel this film is more broad minded and hit you specifically or was this meant for a more like who was the target for this this film initially like whenever they got done with it they're like okay is this going to be a kids movie it's like but there's a lot of like the doctor doom dip stuff that is really friggin dark so who is this movie for and was this meant to be like a did they think this is going to be a darker movie for kids or too light of a film for adults or did they kind of see what the bottom the bottom line was and be like, oh, nailed it. This is where we're going to make a billion dollars. You know, I think that because I was reading a little bit about it last week after I rewatched it. And I think that 
Zemeckis, this is kind of a, a, a thing that doesn't exist anymore, but even though this was probably pitched as a project for kids, for families, he got to make it the way he wanted it, and he did not sand down the rough edges. He left in the alcoholism and the murder and... Gun, gun murder, stuff. yes. <laughs> um, and I think that by letting him do that, I think it made a movie that adults and kids enjoyed. Um, but I think that they, you know, I guess Disney released this or they released it yes. under touchstone. So it was, so they, you know, you could tell them it was a little bit for adults and not entirely for kids, but I think they probably would have liked a, a kinder, gentler murder mystery. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I think that they really, they just got lucky because really this movie is either for very weird kids like I was or for adults who still like some cartoons and not really for a broad audience, but they just got lucky because it turned out so perfectly that everybody loved it. Yeah. And, and, you know, even the, the, you know, you take your kids and Roger's funny and Roger does all this kind of stuff and there's Mickey and there's bugs. And at the same time, they're throwing in like old school Clarabelle Cal references and, um, you know, Betty Boop in there in a, in a, in kind of like a, a semi supporting role. And then, yeah. you know, it's, it's like you said, it, it was fun. The last scene, we paused it whenever the, all, all the tunes are walking back and mm -hmm. we're just like, who's that? Oh, look, there's Daisy and da, 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 and, and, you know, kind of yeah. pointing out these little things, the attention to detail. I, I love the little like studio squabbles about like, I don't think this film could be made today, not oh, no. because of not because of the content, because of IP rights. Yeah, like, exactly. I think it would just it would be too much of a hassle because, like, this the scene where Bob Hoskins is falling and Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse are yes. there with him. <laughs> you're thinking that's awesome. This is a thing that I want in the world. Right. And you're like, why can't that happen again? And it's like because they hate each other. They're in direct competition. They would never allow Bugs and Mickey to be on the same screen. And obviously, even at the time, they're like, well, if they're going to be on, they have to have the exact same screen time. Same yes. thing with with Donald and Daffy Duck. You're exactly. Like, yeah. yeah, of course. <laughs> like, and it's it's so funny to see that and those little squabbles. It's like I always have, I always assume like I never played Kingdom Hearts, but people who love Kingdom Hearts, I'm like, well, that's why. It's because you have everything of everything yeah. to come together and you're like i don't it's it's the what's the uh the dc marvel essentially video game of i don't want to choose one i want both and right. this is the way to bridge those gaps between the two and uh it, it's it's such a weird odd time in film history where that the business and uh ip sides were balanced enough where they're like yeah let's let this happen yeah I mean, lo and behold. Um, see, I, I, I had a, I had a couple of notes. One of them was just Bob Hoskins' exclamation part. Um, yes. The, uh, <laughs> um, the cultural impact. I would say, you know, all of the voice cast. Uh, I forgot that Amy Irving was the singing voice, and I forgot that Amy Irving can really friggin' sing. Yeah. Um, but Kathleen Turner and Jessica Rabbit, the lasting image of. Uh, you know, they always talk about, uh, there's that famous, uh, gif of, uh, of, uh, I think victorious or whatever, where they're talking about where they 
oh, I, I'm a homosexual now. This is the this is the straight version of oh, this is where I I like ladies. Yes. Is is yes. is a hey, looks Jessica Rabbit. Yeah. Okay, I'm feeling something. I'm a yes, young kid, exactly. but I know this is something going on. I mean, right. when you think whenever I think of a car of a scant as like if this movie was made today, the amount of like. Oh my gosh! Yeah, Jessica Rabbit porn would just be out yes. of control. Like it would be yes. a no, it would be a problem. Well, and there'd be you know people in the news talking about you can't take your kids to see this movie because she's <laughs> too sexy. And and, and the whole time she is and and if this was on a human person, yes. you would be like, what in the hell are you wearing? Yes, but as exactly. a cart- as a as a cartoon, right. it works. It only she's works in the cartoon she's version. Just drawn that way. Yeah, I mean, what an <laughs> and and. And Kathleen Turner, apparently uncredited. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, actually, yeah. Amy Irving gets the credit, but obviously Jessica Rab- mm-hmm. it, it, uh, uh, Kathleen Turner, it's kind of like the Mercedes McCambridge of The Exorcist. Yes. Like, everybody knows it's what makes the thing work, but right. it's it's just unspoken about it all. Um, one of her most iconic performances, I would probably oh, yeah. add. Uh, is there Was there like a character in here where you're like, oh, I forgot how much I loved it? Because whenever I rewatched it, I'm like, oh, I forgot how much I love Benny the Cab. It's oh yeah. <laughs> Benny the Cab is great. Um I was surprised like I had kind of dismissed the character and all the times of watching it cuz she's not the focus but uh Eddie's girlfriend is like actually yes! a pretty strong character and not just there to like cheer him up and and all that stuff like she's Joanna Cassidy. To, like, yeah. To find you know finding out some of the mystery and uh I I her character was I guess the revelation of this rewatch for me. I I agree because like I was watching it going like, it, 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 same thing. Like there's a lot of backstory that is kind of like as a kid, you don't, it's, it's always viewing a film as a kid and a view as an adult. You're like, wow, right. they put a lot of different, a lot of more context and character into it. Then you watch it and you're like, wow, she's actually pretty freaking good. Um, yeah, get a get a Saturn Award nomination for best supporting actress for this. So uh, good for her, Joanna Cassidy. Really good in this movie. Uh, looking good too. Like yeah. playing her age, age appropriate. Yes, I like the, exactly. The relationship yeah. is nice. Like you're like, oh, I totally believe that they would be going together. Like it it doesn't uh, it doesn't ever not track. Yeah, I, I agree. That's awesome. Um, let's see. I would see if there's any other notes before. Okay, so. Is there anything else you'd like to say before I get to ask my last question about Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Because this movie is awesome. It's on Disney Plus, by the way, so go watch it. It's uh, I was shocked at how short it was. Um, oh yeah, I, uh, and and the first you know the first ten minutes is an actual cartoon, uh, yes. and and then it's ninety minutes, just kind of flies by. But it it doesn't feel a good example of a efficient storytelling without missing anything and not feeling like you're left out of anything. Correct. Yeah. Another example of that i think is the first men in black which is like 97 minutes and you get all the world building you understand everything you need to know about the characters and this kind of strange situation they're put in and it's not two and a half hours you don't have to learn about who their parents were and what (laughs) moment as a child scarred them and then they you know had to grow up to do this but yeah no it's a really efficiently told story the effects are amazing the acting's amazing and whether you're young or old, if you've never seen this before, you should definitely give it a shot. Really holds up. Really holds up. I agree. Yeah. Um, so that leads into my final question about this film. When it comes to venturing outside your target audience, what do you want audiences to understand about this film to really get on the level of what you're looking for? Um, 
I would say it it does one of my things, or it does one of the things that I really love, which is it takes its silliness seriously, which is that it's not just, it's not like a spoof, which spoofs can be great, but it's not just kind of sticking whatever at the wall, you know, or throwing whatever at the wall, seeing what sticks. It's not mm. just parodying a specific popular movie from the era that it came out in. It's it really is taking kind of its plot and all of the technical aspects seriously, but it still has a lot of humor injected into it. And it's not it's not too silly, it's not too serious. It threads that needle perfectly. Yeah, and it's it's the humor is based on the tone, not based yes. off of something specific. It's it's yeah, the situation's fun, but it's not something where you're like, oh well, you're you're laughing at this because of this specific reference. Yeah, like you said, it's yeah. all it's all organic humor, but tone yes. tonally, and existing in a world where film where noir with noir elements and madcap screwball comedy all mixing and never overpowering one or the other. It's a even without the cartoon aspects, it's a really interesting type of film to dive into as far as tonally. Yes, absolutely. It made me want to uh, rewatch the HBO adaptation of Perry Mason. Yeah. Because they yeah, also good. get a lot of those kind of technical period details right, but the story is so good that you're yeah. you're hooked. Yeah. I, I like the... <laughs> obviously, Perry Mason being a very more uh, R-rated version of it all. Yes, I, I, for I, sure. <laughs> I, 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 I was just thinking of that as like putting rubber, uh, Roger Rabbit aspects in the middle of an R-rated version. But yeah. that's a... that's a, that's it's, uh, that's a fan server side we'll get into. Right. Um, yeah, like I said, Roger uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit on Disney Plus if you want to go check it out. Uh, before we go, Kip, a couple other questions. So... You 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 targeted for this film. So, what is a film where you are not the target audience that hits you in a specific way? This is my favorite question to ask because it just really opens the door for all these people who uh, people are multitudes. Uh, so, what yes. what film it, where you are not the target audience that hits you? Yes. Yeah, so, this is another one that I was introduced to, not nearly as young as Roger Rabbit, but still kind of maybe middle school, high school. Um, that I was definitely not the target audience for, but I loved, which is A Room with a View, um, ah. which is a uh, Merchant Ivory, you know, period drama from the 80s and, you know, very ornate, very slow, for lack of a better word, um, you know, based on a yeah. classic English novel that you might have read in high school. But it's just so mm -hmm. gorgeous the whole time and... It, it's it doesn't have it's not stuffy. A lot of those movies, even some of the ones that Merchant no, Ivory did, are you're right. Very long, very boring. You know the characters are not that compelling. But A Room with a View is you know very romantic, and you know all of they go to Venice, they go to all these other places in Europe that are just breathtaking. Um, and it's really just one of the best romance movies you'll ever see. And, and every British actor just knocking it out of the park. Oh, like, yeah. Helena Bottom Carter, Young. Uh -huh. uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, that, Day that you don't Judy realize Dench is Daniel Day-Lewis? Maggie Smith Day and Judy Dench, both. That's right. Yeah. Yes, and I mean... Um, and Daniel then, Elliott you know, from Raiders Lost Ark, and yeah. Yep. Uh, really? and, and so, and uh, if, you ever, if you've never seen Room with a View, do want to warn you guys, 
you're just like, oh, nice little. And then there's a 10 minute scene with naked dudes. It yes. just, it just is. Um, <laughs> and it's uh, not sexual. They're just having fun. They're just, they, they, yeah, it's, it's so str- Like when I was watching this, I'm just like, what is happening here? Like, this is not what I normally see. And it's, it's kind of like, it's funny. It's not even viewed as any sort of like, it's, it's viewed from like, it's like a mid shot. Like, it's not like, yeah. It's not close up. There's not like any. It's just guys kind of nakedly jumping in the water. Like it's yeah. it's such so it's such an interesting uh, scene. I agree. Um, but good movie. Uh, I I, re, I recently saw it for the first time a couple of years ago. So I, I, that's a that's a good pick. I like that one. Um, Kip, before we go, give us two or three other films that describe Kip as a film goer. Like if you want to get into your head, what is what are the films that like describe you? Um, so I really like, uh, I would say procedurals, but if there's like a well done. So really what I, I want to talk about Zodiac, like you previously ah, mentioned, ah, yes. a movie, I, a movie I love one of the few people who saw it in theaters, um, have rewatched it. I don't know, 10 times. And I find something new to appreciate about, appreciate about it every time. Um, but it is not just a simple investigation movie. There are really brilliant aspects of it throughout a lot of, uh, you know, David Fincher showing off, um, sure. but also just incredible acting. I, I Some people don't like Jake Gyllenhaal's performance in that. I think he's actually tremendous. I never get, I never understand that either. I've heard people like, oh, he's not very good in this. I'm like, I think he's exactly <laughs> what the movie needs him to be. Yes, exactly. He's a Boy Scout who thinks he can figure this out and he can't. Uh, also, also Robert Downey Jr.'s best performance. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I, I mean, he's very good in Oppenheimer, and he might win the mm. Oscar this year. But yeah, I think Zodiac is just, just his line reading of just all of his line readings. I work, I cover crime in Vallejo. <laughs> uh, what is okay? I have to stop and ask you, what's this thing you're drinking? What's this drink? Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, they, uh... he goes, I don't know, man. I moved on to a boat, like. <laughs> he, he's just he's so, he's so he's so good in that movie um and so i do like kind of fincher's like very cold iciness i liked his new movie mm. the killer um yeah but i i do also like having grown up in in a i guess mostly religious church going household i really like um any of scorsese's movies about specifically about his faith all of them are kind of about it but specifically ah. Silence and The Last Temptation of Christ, mm. um, which are very deep, you know, philosophical movies about real people um, and don't necessarily have a clear answer. There's still a lot of room for doubt and searching in those movies. Uh, so I really love those. And then, you know, I I also like... Like I said, I like dark movies with a little bit of comedy. I like comedies with a little bit of darkness. So a movie like The Apartment mm. is one of my favorites. Um, yes, Because great it's choice. very funny. And Jack Lemmon and Charlie McLean are all great in that. But, you know, there's a lot of darkness in that movie. There's, oh, yeah. Know, oh, yeah. You know, affairs and attempted suicide and blackmail and all that stuff. Um, but it's still a romantic comedy, even though it's a little bit twisted. So... Those are, those are kind of covers all my bases. And I, and I always, I always, uh, the thing I appreciate about the apartment is an, a, a romantic comedy where the couple you're cheering for don't really end up together. 
Yeah. But it's open-ended. It's not like, oh, yes. they're not together. They are together. But it's like, eh, it's potential. Like, it's... Yes. It, love those type of, like... I'll always give uh, the, you know, I, I won't praise Woody Allen for much, but he always kind of subverts whatever the expectation yes. is. And I like whenever yeah. the expectation is subverted. Same here. Great, great. Uh, awesome choices. Um, by the way, you want to talk about a film that justifies, uh, Zodiac, you want to talk about a film that justifies its length. Oh, it's, yeah, 100%. It's nearly, three, it's nearly three hours. I wouldn't take a second out of it. Yeah, so... No. Um, Not yeah, so I, I get that. Uh, great. Those are awesome choices. Uh, this has been such, so much fun to talk about. I think that's just about does it for this episode. Uh, Kip, thank you so very much for joining us and thank you all, uh, listening for joining us. Kip, what do you got going on these days? I mean, it is the middle of November when we're recording this. It's also known as hell for a movie critic because all you are doing is you're just like, I'm scrambling to try to watch seven new movies this week and yes. trying to schedule screenings and everything. What do you got going on? Uh, well, like you and a lot of the critics, I've basically been doing two screenings a week for the last two weeks and that will continue until Thanksgiving. And then it's just watching as many screeners as yep. you can. Um, so it's doing fun time that to ch- fun time to check the mail. Yes, it is. It is. Although, you know, I've noticed, especially this year, it's really uh, the volume of, physical screeners and physical objects you're getting is is much lower yep uh, yep it's so funny far. it's funny that the streamers are the ones that always send you all this stuff because it's like i could literally just fire up this movie on your service right now i don't need a dvd <laughs> I, I i've uh, been feel, i've been feeling the same way like amazon yeah. is so on top of sending yes. you stuff and i'm like well amazon i watched it back in april when it released right. like <laughs> but i appreciate the effort it's like exactly so i uh, and uh so, I mean, there's kind of highbrow and lowbrow. So, like, this week I'm seeing Maestro tomorrow, you know, this very acclaimed biopic from Bradley Cooper. And then the next day I'm seeing Eli Roth's Thanksgiving. So, and I'm excited <laughs> about both. Um, so, yeah, so that's – it's it's a busy time for critics, but one of my favorite times because, boy, there were some months this year it's just like there's nothing out. And if there yep. is, it's nothing to get excited about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that'll be that'll be fun. Um, you can right now. I'm really only writing for CollegeMovieReview.com, but uh, you know, pretty steady work over there. And then I'm on almost all of the social media apps except for Blue Sky, but that'll probably be happening sooner rather than later. <laughs> um, and I'm at Kip J Mooney on all those things. So go check go check him out. He's always a fun uh, fun follow. Letterbox too. Yes. 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 Uh, always. Uh, I like to like, I, I don't realize, you know, we're kind of in a film Twitter bubble of yes. everybody talking about letterbox and every once in a while I'll say letterbox and I have a friend who goes like, what are you talking about letterbox? And I'm like, what do you mean? Not to, it's the most important social media app. It really course. is. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one I care about the most. Um, right. also the least toxic somehow. Um, yes. you can, you can follow me on Twitter at Neb has been on letterbox at Neb has been on Instagram at Neb dot is been. You can check out my website, icecreamforfreaks.com. You can follow my other writings on the film experience and cinema scholars and uh, new addition to that. I've also been writing for uh, movies. We texted about.com. So uh, go check that out. You can also find me on other pods. I'm David Thulis of podcasting. Please follow this podcast on Twitter at target odd pod and on blue sky at target audience. And you can enjoy the show wherever you get your podcast on the platform of your choice. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. Remember, get out of your bubble, expand your horizons, and just watch more movies. Um.
bed made of what of your tongue Tone deaf with a headache for one Back to the water below Alone as a float like a stone